Hi, I'm Tim Sonova, and welcome to the season one finale of Work Should Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by the super amazing human, Elizabeth Streb. It's impossible for me to distill Elizabeth's bio into just a few sentences, but I'll try. She's a MacArthur Genius Award recipient. She dove through glass, allowed a ton of dirt to fall on her head, walked down the outside of London City Hall, and set herself on fire, although we learned that setting herself on fire was actually an accident. And these are just a few of the things among Elizabeth's long list of feats of extreme action. The 2014 documentary Born to Fly is a must-see. It chronicles her company of extreme action mechanics as they prepare for and perform literally breathtaking moments as part of the 2012 Cultural Olympiad of the Olympic Summer Games in London. We are so happy she's able to join us for the season finale. Without further ado, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. So really excited to to have this conversation with you, Elizabeth. Our first question for all of our guests, and in particular, knowing that it's the night after your first virtual gala, (laughs) how are you doing personally and how is your community doing during the pandemic? Well, I think that the community at large, my small community, which is Streb Extreme Action, our dance company, and also our SLAM lab, Streb Lab for Action Mechanics, where everything happens, including you know, 600 kids a week in an after-school program, ordinarily, normally, rehearsals, flying trapeze, Streb's rehearsals, shows. That's closed. You know, we closed it middle, early March, like everyone else, you know, trying to figure out how do we keep operating. We did get a PPP, you know, so we're continuing to pay the dancers. And I think I and my executive director, Christine Chen, were dedicated to keeping our promise to the dancers and our employees, even though the income from the slam shows and one of the transmigrations of our operation live with the brilliant leadership of Christine Chen, our executive director, was to put all of the training online. So we had a whole semester, for instance, of kids action, and we'd already gotten the tuition. The dancers band together with the leadership of Christine and started to send classes to the kids at home. And they would you know, even the parents, because they were stuck at home too, would take these classes for kids' action. And the kids were known to run up to the screen and kiss their teachers. And apparently the parents did that too. <laughs> things that they could do. And we had very few people ask for the tuition back. You know, we're trying to like grab the income we can. We knew that the shows weren't going to go on. All of the work that we would do with the Kennedy Center, like River Run, that they were doing with their all around surrounding Potomac and their opening of their new building and Brookfield properties and the Cambridge. We went online, did all these other things online that have been posted on Instagram. And it's just an unknown. I'm not worrying about money. I think, Christine, we always worry about money, but what can we do? You know, I think my attitude is we're doing the best we can. We're going to pay everybody for as long as the money holds out. So mostly we've gone up virtually as uniquely as Streb can do, being that I am a physical company. I made a piece for Zoom for the gala last night. They just really don't like Zoom. I don't see how they can't get the right. You know, so I the images that I thought were hard to do, but nothing was edited because I refused to do that. But the cues, like I wanted them flying all around the nine boxes. That was not going to happen. <laughs> I'm adjusting. I'm trying not to have an attitude about my obsession is our content is in the rhythm of action. 
not words or not music. And it's gone, <laughs> gone, 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 you know, so get humble. I guess those are the details. I think everybody's trying to make adjustments and dance companies are particularly hard because you're paying humans to do physical things outside or inside and that's gone, you know, but I can keep the paying humans for as long as we can. That made me think of the conversation we had on Friday with Lisa Yancey and Bamuthi Joseph, where he talked about being a dancer and sort of his work being his body. I'm wondering if you're rethinking or reframing your work during this time. In terms of the work being their bodies? Yeah. As humbly as possible. You know, I think that the dancers, we've had four hour Zoom rehearsals to make this piece Horizon Line. They're in their little rooms or rooms somewhere around Manhattan, the Bronx, and it's physically difficult, mentally difficult, spiritually difficult. But you do it anyway. I don't get into like regret or hope. You know, I expunge them from my vocabulary many decades ago. It's a present tense idea and philosophically it's also a present tense idea. So there are things with little detritus on the ground that we have that we can harness. And that's what we're trying to do. And it's a cheery attitude. No swearing at slam because we mic our sets and the kids will hear you. And also <laughs> you can increase your vocabulary if you promise not to swear. Anytime someone swears at slam, you have to give me a quarter. <laughs> just imagine people carrying quarters around in their pockets just on the off chance that that might happen. Yeah, I'd have to pay up front. <laughs> Put me on layaway. <laughs> Well, I'm telling you, look, I've started swearing again, which is my partner, Laura Flanders, is like, I can't believe you're like a sailor, a drunken sailor. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> to not do that. And I think it's really increases your vocabulary if you don't swear, but I'm just hopefully not on the air. <laughs> Research shows that people who curse are more likely telling you the truth. So whenever I, I actually say <laughs> something, I usually follow up with the research. But that, <laughs> but I've never heard that. I think you're making an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah. I've never seen the research. I've just read the article that references it. Yeah. You're just repeating rumors. In other words. <laughs> it's true, Elizabeth. That's exactly what's happening. <laughs> well, you talk about regret and hope. And we were in a meeting a couple of weeks ago, and one of our coworkers remarked that this is the first time in their life when they're faced, when we're faced with the uncertainty of a global pandemic, when they've sat to contemplate, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. And it took on new meaning for them. You are someone who I know does things that I could never do. Walk down the side of outside of a building, jump through place of glass, set yourself on fire. And I imagine you have a relationship with fear that You've given far more thought or not to what fear is. And during this pandemic, I'm wondering what comes to mind as you think about that. Setting myself on fire was for my girlfriends, my partners now. My, we recently got married after 29 years or something, but that was, I don't know. Lesbians don't get married, for God's sake. But that's all lesbians get married. But it was for her 40th birthday. And that was probably almost 18 years ago. But I set a fire, my dancer set a fire, and I was supposed to land on it and put it out. It was called Blaze Away, trying to demonstrate to Melissa Etheridge, 
I'm the only one who walked across the party. And when I stood up, I'd been using Sterno. I was on fire. So it wasn't like I'm going to set myself on fire. I got, for my carelessness, got set on fire. I think that fear is a class thing, in my opinion, because I got brought up in a very working class family. And then I went, I sort of snuck into the higher art world by default, by stubbornness. And I can see, you know, those girls that, women, that would end rehearsal and go out to dinner and I would go to the restaurants and cook. I was a chef. And then I'd even research the famous choreographers in New York, their parents. One's a judge, one's a lawyer. My father laid bricks, you know. So I think that fear, what we consider fear, in the dance world especially, because it's what you do to train your body to do things that are supposed to be new vocabularies, like to increase the profundity and the vocabulary and the language, grammar of action, not just to perform the techniques you learn in ballet class, which is what they do. Why would I want to see a Ronde Jean? What the hell is that? You know? And the idea that action has meaning rather than experience capacity in terms of transference. So I always disagreed with everything the dance world promulgated. And so fear for me was I noticed that, you know, people of a higher class, higher fences, larger yards, they keep harm away, way away from them. And I'm thinking, well, how bad could it be? And you just start moving closer and closer to the instant of disaster. And you know about millisecond timing and you know you can get out of there. But if you don't go there, or you're so worried about your own precious little speck in the universe that you just don't do things that are going to arrest the attention of the viewers. So I feel that fear is just a detail. It's something we learn. And little girls, too, be careful, be careful, don't get hurt. I'll carry the heavy thing for you. Like, I'm probably one of the few teenagers. I look very, very straight as a young woman all the way to when I hit 40. And then the guys stopped bugging me. Thank God. And I accept that because they figured I couldn't have their baby or something like that. Right? I mean, I have this really crazy attitude. But I think that my fear thing is that in that zone, which is certainly not a zone you're ever going to meet catastrophe if you're paying utter and rabid attention. You figure out techniques to move in a millisecond manner. You make a decision when you're, everything goes to heck in a handbasket. You make a decision to save yourself. And that's where the stuff of the action erupts from, not exercising your training in such a classist way. You know? Thank you for that. It strikes me in this whole thing about fear, one of the most interesting things about the pandemic for me is how few people I know think about sort of the reality of death. And <laughs> people are really panicking about that. And I feel like I've made my peace with the idea of my demise, which is inevitable, in a way that a lot of my colleagues haven't. Has the pandemic made you reframe your thoughts on like your own mortality? Or do you feel like you've always had a pretty good sense of that and a pretty good understanding of that? I'm not so worried about myself, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, I did get COVID. We just got tested and I had COVID. We have a little cabin up in Smallwood, New York, by where the real Woodstock happened. And I was careless when we left New York, went to a restaurant, went to a party, went to the movies, and I got slapped with it. And I actually had that thought, oh, hmm, I'm 70. Uh-oh, I'm going to go out with this stupid thing. And I'd rather you know, be falling off a tall building or something yeah. <laughs> You're going to get me with this damn antibody or whatever the heck it is. 
I guess I understand people being afraid, but I think the whole other thing, Laura, is like this thing about what it's bringing out about race, mm-hmm. in country, like what the heck, or class and poverty. And for me, if there's anything that's going to switch the lens on fairness in this world, and certainly in this country, maybe it's this. Maybe the good thing out of this is just to figure out how to have empathy for everybody. And I'm working on trying to have my attitude about wealthy people ebb away a little. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're stingy, but what else can I say, right? <laughs> Well, before we get to a comment from Andrew Taylor, who was just live chatting, in this moment, it feels like we have an opportunity to do things that we might not have been able to do in our lives. The globe essentially has shut down. And to get to a future where everyone can thrive, what do you think it will take that we need to do now before maybe it just falls right back into what it's been for generations? That's a very complicated question, I guess, because mostly I don't know. I don't think it will go back. I just don't see how it can go back. We live in New York City. You guys probably do too. And we have a loft in Soho that I had in the 70s. It's devastated, you know, and it's this high end of real estate mongerine and, you know, people just hanging on to things and seeing how much they can get and It just was destroying businesses here and certainly all over New York for quite a while before COVID hit. And so Lori Garrett, who I was mentioning is amazing health political activist, doctor, said it'll be 36 months. It'll be three years Mm -hmm. before they get a vaccine. That's what she thinks. And she was very, very involved in the AIDS crisis also, although it wasn't a pandemic, but I just don't see. And then because this keeps mutating, this virus, with the children's story the other day, the 73 children. Who knows? It could be like the dinosaurs and the asteroid and no more anything. It could be that. I don't know. And also climate change and nobody was paying any attention in mm-hmm. power to that. So do people learn their lessons? I don't think it'll ever go back to normal, though. I don't think people change past the age of 20. <laughs> I don't really think <laughs> Yeah. Not really. Yeah. Well, we have a question from someone who's watching, Andrew Taylor. Andrew was a guest on our show last Friday, or yeah, two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, things are running together. But he says, Your work refuses the premise of human constraint, of gravity, of the horizontal, of the human body. How are you considering and questioning our current constraints of home space and the Zoom screen? Well, Andrew, we did. We'll put this out. I've got to get you on my mailing list again. You are. We've had great exchanges over the years, Andrew and I have, you know, about education and about the arts and about life. But I think that the screen, I'm not comfortable with it, as you could see how long it took me. (laughs) But Andrew, I am. I found myself getting fascinated by it when I was making the Horizon Lion dance for our gala, our Action Mavericks gala. It's missing everything I care about, physicality, danger, time. I sort of blame it on the physicists because they've still never defined time, not even defined it. And space-time is supposed to be the same thing. I asked Lisa Randall once, she's a physicist at Harvard, and I said, well, what's your definition of time? Well, no one's been able to really define it because, well, there's a problem with a minus sign. I go, oh, really? That's an <laughs> problem. All right. Except for the tachyon where you can go backwards in time, it's a theoretical particle. 
But I guess, Andrew, I'm just a curmudgeon and I'm going to do it. I'm going to get into Zoom or Chrome. One of the things that is nine squares and we were not editing and it was two minutes long. And all I could do is positional things and images. We go faster than what images would provoke. They last about a half a millisecond. So it's everything I don't like. You know, someone's handed me this pail and I'm going to have to just get into it. <laughs> Elizabeth, yeah. this could be exciting to see what you come up with, because if anyone can make this work, I'm excited to see what comes out of that. Thank I you. have recommended that I've lost track at how many people need to watch Born to Fly, the documentary. I was fortunate to see it in New York when you were there about the 2012 Cultural Olympiad. Lauren and I have talked about her love of the Olympics and how typically she would shut down every summer and winter for years. What's your relationship with the Olympics, Elizabeth? Do you usually watch it? Do not? Do you have favorite sports? Were you like, I'm going to just slide people down the spokes of the London Eye, and that's going to be far far more interesting than anything else? <laughs> well, I was really pretty cool, you got to admit. I have a rigger named Robin Elias with unusual riggers in London, and he created these gizmos that snapped onto the spokes, all 32 of them, and I choreographed this whole dance on the spokes. Profundity is it kept changing. The spoke changed its relationship to gravity. And every little movement on that thing, and they could slide, go 200 feet down the radius. It's, you know, 600 feet in the air. Once you're off the ground, 65 feet. It was a new vocabulary because the relationship with gravity was different. And I was entranced. And we walked down City Hall, but we were tied somewhere up in the roof. <laughs> and you know, remember, it stopped and Leonardo had to go over and unwrap a cable. When I was, there was like a mistake, right? And I was at the roof, top of the roof of the city hall in London, getting ready to go. And there was this, a rigger was up there, Robin was. And I went, I think there's a problem there. It's all this tangle. I think it's not correct. No, no, don't worry. You know how, how hardware junkies talk to girls, you know? <laughs> and sure enough, we get like a third of the way down and there's a problem. <laughs> Turn back and say, I told them there's a problem. <laughs> But the Olympics was a once in a lifetime bungee jumping off the Millennium Bridge. Anyway, in reference to the Olympics, I watch every Olympic. My favorite sport is downhill skiing with the women. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is like, and you win. This is the other thing. Talk about time. You win by a quarter of an inch, mm -hmm. right? It's a hundred thousandth of a second. Mm -hmm. And all you can do to be that good is have guts and just be skiing your home. Like Lindsey Vaughn. I mean, it was just like cracking all of her falls. Mm -hmm. I don't like it that people fall and get hurt. But I love watching how they survive those falls going at that speed, 70 miles an hour. Is that right, Lauren? It's something like 70 it's, miles it's an fast. hour. Yeah. <laughs> what other sport do you like, Lauren? So I always forget the name of the sport. I didn't know it existed until a couple of years ago. Biathlon, right? Biathlon. When these, I mean, white people invent the most amazing sports. You're skiing long distance. And then you have to lay down the snow and shoot at targets. It is amazing. And if I had known that sport existed when I was a kid, I would have like thrown my basketball into the wind and become a biathlete. See, that's like, we're, we're fast twitch people. Mm -hmm. Like anaerobic, I don't like it. I want it to be over in two minutes and, that's, and I'll suffer yeah. all the way, yeah. but not an hour or whatever the heck those things do. But as I've gotten older, I've become a more patient athlete. 
You have. I've, yeah, I'm like, you know, I was always a sprinter and a basketball player, and now I can do things for 45 minutes an hour that are not me chasing a ball, which is very strange. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm yeah. Very impressed by that. Yeah. I love surfing, but it's not an Olympic. Where's my book? Oh, I have this great book called Sharks, mm -hmm. Death, Surfing. <laughs> <laughs> very, very hard book to find. Yeah. I found it in Nelly Jackson, but it's my Bible. I, care. I even held it up at the gala last night. I go, get this book. But I think physical ideas like that, like surfing was, I also love sports that go on for generations, mm -hmm. but they get no notice whatsoever. And like when people surf the Mavericks, those are the waves yeah. that are like 60 feet high, 40 feet high. And you fall off of that and you just die. So yeah. I like things that have death at the other edge of them, I guess. Yeah, I totally yeah. get it. Yeah. Meanwhile, I went cross country skiing for the first time on a totally flat land and broke my ankle. So, you know. Okay. I'm Look. sorry, but how can you break it? You're not even attached to the ski. <laughs> and I'm not going to cry real, real tears for that. <laughs> I'm not going to cry real Yeah. Clearly, I'm not pushing the envelope hard enough. <laughs> well, you just decided to bail out and didn't want to do it anymore. And that was I have an aversion to what I would call low friction sports, ice skating, skiing. I'm more of a cyclist and runner where you're there's some traction there. But I don't know. I was in Canada a couple of months ago. Everyone was so encouraging about how easy cross country skiing is. I thought, might as well try it. And then <laughs> first time out ever in my life, a mile broke my leg. That's terrible. Good story. It's the only time I'm going going to go skiing. And we're coming up on time, though. I think it's time for the suitcase question, it is, Lauren. It is. Elizabeth, I'm going to miss talking to you. It's good that someone else can give Tim a hard time besides me. <laughs> <laughs> it's my job, Tim. And I love fractured atlas. So. Oh, thank you. So throughout your life, you've been carrying a figurative suitcase with you. Habits and beliefs and things you love that have been in the suitcase for a long time. And now we're in a pandemic. So what's one thing that's been in your suitcase for a long time that you're tossing out, never to go back in again? And what's one new habit or belief or love that you are going to put into the suitcase forever? This is really a quintessential, impossible to answer question. I won't take any of the books out. That's why my suitcases are so, I know, <laughs> I think I'd read on my iPad, but not, not reading on a virtual machine. Now, we're saying this right as I've got this huge suitcase. We're in New York and we're going back tonight or tomorrow. I've like packed a million other things in there. So I know it's a metaphor. But maybe I, I take body lotion out, which is bad for a 70-year-old to do, but it's wrinkling anyway. What can I do? So tell you that. Then I think I take that out. Exercise equipment I take out. I've mm -hmm. got to get back to exercising, but I'm not in the mood. So that goes out. I think that what I would leave in or put in. Yeah, something new that you're going to put in. Well, what I've been putting in is certain types of books. I almost got the Rome Prize, but then I was rejected. I was going to take a year off and go and just be. Mm -hmm. And the, the thing that I'm putting in is time. Mm -hmm. That I wanted to go back to when I was just nobody, sitting on a curb on Canal Street, reading, studying, you know, the kind of time you need to yes. really read a book that's philosophical. So it would be philosophy, mathematics, and science. And, you know, I have time to, like, read a page and then run. 
like I've noticed also a lot of the quotes I used to just say this, 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 and Einstein said, this guy said, John Cage, a woman said, now I want to go back there. Mm-hmm. And it's giving me time. So I'm putting time for study back in my suitcase. Mm-hmm. And the COVID is really the only implementer I think that could have forced that on me. And even though in my mind, I wanted to go back to be able to see, could I come up with a new idea or am I done inventing? Does the world need another modern dance dance or mm-hmm. action dance? Does it need it or are the 99 or 100 I've made enough? Mm-hmm. And what would be the next version of me giving back before I, the idea is that I would just burst into dust. That's my idea to die. I'm not mm-hmm. gonna take a lot of time dying. I just wanna explode. Because I've used every single part of my microbes up. And I think that, yeah, that those are the things that I would do. Amazing. That is amazing. Elizabeth, you are a wonderful person and it's an honor to get to know you, to have known you for for these years and to close our season one with this conversation. I can't imagine two other people that I would rather have making fun of me for my inability to cross-country ski than than the two of you lovingly doing that. I I assume it's lovingly. I'm going to take that as, as lovingly. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Real pleasure. And with that, we sadly and excitedly and with an immense amount of gratitude to all of our guests and viewers have reached the end of an amazing season one of the Work Shouldn't Suck Live morning show. Never fear, we have more audio only podcast episodes in the queue while we plan our next live season. You can also download all of the previous Work Shouldn't Suck Live episodes from your favorite podcasting platform of choice and rewatch Work Shouldn't Suck Live episodes over on workshouldsuck.co. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.